Today in a special episode, we'll be interviewing Dr. Jen Gunter. She's a physician, an OBGYN, and a pain medicine specialist. And she's the author of the new book, The Menopause Manifesto. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Definitely not a real doctor. Especially not today. Exactly. Ali Hassan. Every episode, what we normally do is I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. However, this is a special episode. Today, our guest is Dr. Jen Gunter. She's a physician, an OBGYN, a pain medicine specialist, a podcaster, and really just a legend. And she's also the author of the new book, The Menopause Manifesto. Dr. Jen Gunter, welcome to Dr. Versus Comedian. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, Dr. Gunter, uh, we know that you're initially from, originally, I should say, from Winnipeg, right. and then you did your residency at uh, Western, University of Western Ontario, now called Western University, and you finished there in 1995. Yeah. Now, I started at Western in 1996 in med school, so we just missed each other. Oh, that's ah! too bad. You could have shoved him up against the locker and taken some of his lunch money if you wanted to. <laughs> Just, oh man. Anyway, I don't want you to have regrets about your career. This is what happened, happened. That's fine. You missed each other. I didn't even know Western changed their name. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I'm not even sure why that they did that. I guess, you know, maybe the Ontario was too regional. They wanted to make it just Western, like the Western part of the world. I don't know. It's uh, it's quite bizarre. And then you, you're in Northern California now. So what took you to Northern California from Canada? I guess I was looking to see if there was another bar besides Joe Cool's. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's such that's a, a very inside baseball that's Western like reference. The deep Western reference yeah. that, that only <laughs> us who went there would know. Very good. Yeah. Every single person who went to Western will be like, yeah. And everybody else is like, what? So I came to the States actually to do my fellowship. And I did my fellowship at the University of Kansas, having no idea that the Midwest and the United States wasn't the same as the Midwest in Canada. Winnipeg's a pretty, pretty liberal city. And I just grew up like, you know, with the Fringe Festival and just, you know, not thinking much of, of anything. And then getting to sort of Kansas and being like, whoa, this is, this is not at all like the Midwest in Canada, very religious, very, just very different. So I was in Kansas first. I stayed after my fellowship because they offered me a job and it just seemed like an adventure to be in another country. And then I ended up staying and then I moved to the University of Colorado. I was there for five years and then finally moved out to the West Coast. And that's where I am. I'm just outside of San Francisco. And along with your practice, many doctors just content to have a practice and that's where it ends. But you, you had this blog for a long time, prolific blog, you know, huge social media presence. And then as many people will know, including our listeners, you have uh, you started having these online battles with Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop. And we actually spoke about that on a, on a previous episode of Dr. Versus Comedian. But we thought we'd ask you, since we talked about it before, how did those interactions come about initially? And where is it all? Is it smoldering ashes now? Or where is it? Where have you left it? Well, I have to be careful about punching down. But 
<laughs> so it started, you know, I was blogging for some time and people would send you things about, is this true? Is this crazy? What, what is this? And so I often wrote about misinformation that people came across online or really frank disinformation. And then one day someone tagged me in post from Goop. And I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. It was about vaginal steaming. I mean, it was just ludicrous. And I mean, full of every bit of sort of misinformation, just a complete lack of understanding of physiology. And so, you know, as I wrote about it being, you know, as ridiculous as it was, just like I wrote about everything else. I mean, I don't think it was, you know, particularly different, but because it was, you know, that special combination of vaginas and celebrities <laughs> and that, that it went crazy. That was a, you know, it certainly wasn't my viral post at all, but that was the one that, that seemed to draw more people to me afterwards. And so, you know, when people would tag me in crazy things on Goop, I would write about it. They certainly went through this period of time where they were, you know, really writing a lot about, I would say sort of, you know, women's health or sexual health and, and really doing it very poorly. Not so much that, I mean, yeah, really doing it very poorly, I would say. Um, and then other things too, you know, you get on their site and you're like, oh, raw goat's milk to cure parasites. Uh, okay. <laughs> or to cause parasites. Like. <laughs> right. No, I mean, exactly. And I really, what I felt was the real danger of was that you were elevating these, I would say practitioners of, you know, I don't even really know how else to describe them, but these sort of functional medicine and naturopathic practitioners who all have supplements to sell, who are all seem to be cash only practices, telling people things like you need to have these crazy panel of blood tests and stool tests for the, the systemic yeast that you, you know, you don't have. And the, you know, and it was really sort of elevating, you know, not just this one bad idea, but anti-science in general. And so, yeah, so that's kind of how the Goop thing started. And then it eventually after writing about it, and I, that's not all I wrote about. That's sort of what the popular press was interested in. But, you know, there's a lot of other stuff as well. I actually went to a Goop conference because I wanted to see it real. <laughs> that's so vice reporter vibe right there, you know, really go under undercover and then report about like, this is what's going on there. And then that must have also just sort of your report on the conference must have also elevated this entire thing. And did you become sort of the go-to person? Like every time something new and weird comes on Goop, people are like, look at this, Dr. Um, Gunter, let's get. Yeah, people did. I mean, certainly before I went to the conference, that happened. And I mean, you try not to, it's, you have to walk the line about, is that something to write about? Because it's real and people are actually going to do it. Or is it something if I just leave it alone, it's going to die a quick natural death. And some of the things I would just write about because I was interested in, like, I mean, something that, <laughs> something that Goop promoted a couple of years ago on their, their January must buy New Year's list was, you know, the, the Implantorama, which is the way to do your own coffee enemas at home. <laughs> I just, I love that that's a must buy. I love that it's January too. You're making New Year's resolutions. Yeah. You know, you want to you do 20 push ups every day. You want to drink more water. And of course, you want to add Put coffee in your ass. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I got a little bit fascinated with that because obviously, Gwyneth Paltrow's personal physician or personal friend physician, Dr. Junger, I think is his name, recommended it. This is the one he recommends. I'm like, who the hell is like, like that is so ridiculous. And so like, I took a deep dive because I wanted to know like, how did coffee enemas become a thing? There actually is a Facebook group dedicated to coffee enema aficionados. <laughs> and so someone unbeknownst to me had infiltrated that group 
long before and was sending me screenshots. I mean, I didn't use any screenshots from, you know, some people's private conversations, but it was just amazing to me to actually, I thought it was this sort of completely fringe thing, but there were more people doing it than I thought. And so all these, these posts on it said it was like a British military thing. And that's why, and I'm like, okay, well, military medicine from, you know, like whatever, 1900s, like 1910 from the first world war, whatever that'd be 1919. That's not like what we should actually be practicing, but I got like really interested in it. So there's a British medical military museum. So I emailed the curator wanting to know if he'd heard about coffee enemas. And of course I got the most delightful email back saying that this was the most interesting email that he'd ever received. And he would look into it. it. Did he get back to you about that? Did he? So he did. Did He He got back. Absolutely. He got back to me. It's delightfully British email. You know, like you can imagine this like sort of curator who gets these like, what bullet is this from? You know, all of a sudden it's like Mm -hmm. coffee enemas. And so it was in a medical field guide from like whatever, 1917, as a way to wake men up in the field. Okay. I'm like, okay, based on no science or anything. And I'm like, wouldn't it be faster to just drink it? But anyway, so- (laughs) That was the only sort of legitimate sort of original medical source I could find. But, you know, sort of a lot of this pseudoscience comes from these one-liners, these Mm -hmm. throwaway one-liners. And, you know, and we see that just like, even now with like lies about, well, whatever, about ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, like we still see it today. Like some people cherry one line and then turn it into something. Yeah. You'd think that uh, constant gunfire and the fear of death would keep the soldiers awake just as well as a coffee enema. But anyway, I'm not a military expert, so I'll, I'll leave it to them. <laughs> so I was actually ask you something about that because Ali and I have been listening to your new podcast, Body Stuff, which is mm-hmm. on the TED Audio Collective. And this is kind of what you do in a lot of these episodes. You take some of these things that people just take for granted and you kind of go down that rabbit hole. Like, why do we think these things? Whether it's about uh, milk, is milk good for you? Whether it's about how many glasses of water we need a day and things like that. So I guess just tell me maybe a bit about how the podcast kind of came to be and your involvement with TED. Yeah. So I, Ted asked me to do a Ted talk. I'm having so much trouble, like with time, like when was that? We're all at this sort of weird, like amorphous yeah. time period, right? Yeah. Sometime in the before time. I think it was in mm-hmm. 2019. They asked me to, to do a TED talk. And I decided to branch out a little bit. Everybody said knew me as like the vulvar vagina lady. And so I decided to actually do something on periods just because I, you know, I wanted to branch out a little bit, but also <laughs> because a lot of times it is the backstory that really matters. And so like medicine is part of culture and society and you can't separate the two. All doctors have opinions that are informed by society. Society decides what research we're going to do. Like, you know, there's, it's so intertwined that you really need to, I think, incorporate both. And so in that talk, I wanted to explain periods to people, but not in, not in just a biological way, like what happens, but why do we bleed? Like, why do we have such heavy periods versus other animals? Why do we bleed in the way that we do? Because it's actually really quite unique. And it's all related, obviously, to the massive toll of that reproduction takes. And humans have a unique biology in the sense that we can't on in the woods and get up and go, you know, like we have these vulnerable babies that require care. And so all of everything is built for that. It's evolved for, you know, for that and sort of explaining it from sort of this evolutionary standpoint and then taking 
and applying it to the experiences that you have today. And so, you know, that talk, I think really resonated with them. And so we kind of started chatting about, about the idea of, of sort of trying to, that was sort of my vision was like, you know, when I attend a lecture, I love when I get like those little historical backstories, like, oh, like in 1712, Sir, you know, whatever, Dr. John, whatever, decided this. And you're like, oh, someone back then was thinking that. That's really fascinating. Or this midwife realized that you could do this with ergot and then everybody started doing it, you know, whatever. So, yeah, so I wanted to incorporate some of that into it. And so kind of have this like A, B story with the podcast, like the A story medicine and the B story is why do we think we do about that medicine or how did we get to think the way we did? So that, that's kind of how it came about. And at the risk of being overly complimentary, I will say that somebody like me, like I don't know who you consider your demographic, but I found it so incredibly clear. And if anything wasn't clear, your analogies or, or I guess metaphors are are just so great. You know, that when you describe the hormones are like the bouncer at the nightclub and the uterus is it's an exclusive VIP venue that only allows some of the eggs, i.e. the party goers in. I really, I've learned over time to sort of speak in pictures and paint a picture when you're on radio and podcast and you do a just a phenomenal job of that. So I will give an extra plug to your <laughs> podcast, which is great listening. It really is. Thank you. A friend of mine said that my superpower is analogies. So I'm like analogy woman. And I'm like, okay, so I'm, that's why I'm fighting the forces of pseudoscience. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, this brings us to your new book out now, which is the menopause manifesto. So you know, you talked a bit about some of the other topics you've talked about, and then you talked about periods in your in your TED talk. But what made you decide to do this book about menopause? Well, a couple of things. You know, I'd been thinking about it for a little while, but I had a couple of ideas. You know, maybe I'd write this book. You know, and then I was on book tour actually for the Vagina Bible, and every stop there were questions about menopause. And once one person asked a question. The like it was that opened the floodgates. And when I was even like doing interviews for the vagina Bible, if menopause came up, then that's all people wanted to talk about. And I was like, whoa, okay, there's obviously a need here that I hadn't really thought about because you know, like as a doctor, like you know the biological process. So to you, you just think you kind you operate under this mistaken perception or mistaken idea that everybody knows this basic biology, right? Like, well, doesn't everybody know how the nervous system works? Like, well, no, actually most people have no neurotransmitter and and the thalamus and, you know, all this kind of stuff, but we kind of take it for granted. And so there's that stepping stone that's always missing there. And so I started thinking about all these questions and they were, they're almost always the same. And they came from those sort of the same, like not getting enough information in the doctor's office, being tripped up by misinformation online when they started searching for it. And so I just, I just thought there's clearly a need here. And that was something that I guess I was willing to tackle, even though so many people want to talk about menopause. It's one of those things that, you know, doesn't get advertisers, doesn't, you know, isn't like popular, even though like half the population will eventually have it. And so I wanted to tackle it in the same way, like I did sort of the TED talk in a sense that I wanted people to understand like the culture and the history of menopause as well, because we've been sold this story that is a sign of weakness. And we use these words like ovarian failure when actually, you know, it's an evolutionary strength. And it's interesting, actually, a couple of things stuck with me most from your podcast about your, about menopause and stuff that you've written about in the book. There are terms 
referring to menopause, you know, from textbooks in the past textbooks. Can you talk a little bit about those? I'd love for listeners to hear that those from your mouth rather than mine. Yeah, it's not actually always so old either. So up until recently, you know, we've used the term vaginal atrophy for the changes that happen with menopause, which sounds awful, right? As opposed to genitourinary syndrome of menopause sounds, you know, it's not catchy, but it's better. Mm. And we still, you know, there's still ones in medicine that are very pejorative. Like we say ovarian failure, like the ovaries are failing or loss of estrogen, but it's a planned event. It's not a failure. It's not like the thyroid stopping. Like this was always meant to happen. It's like saying the end of puberty is a failure. It's like, no, like that's meant to happen mm-hmm. or the end of pregnancy, a normal term pregnancy is a failure. It was like, no, that's, that's, that's actually meant to happen. So, you know, these terms affect how you think about yourself and your body. They have to, because, you know, they get used over and over and over again. And that just adds to this sort of pejorative nature. I mean, it's not just about menopause, the word pedendum, which we use much more to describe you know, the external genitalia for women than men, the Latin root of pedendum pedere is to shame. And, you know, the Latin root for clitoris is to hide and hymen is named after the Greek God of marriage. Hmm. Hmm. And to give a comparison, there's no body part in the man named after a Greek God, but priapism, which is a medical condition where, you know, the, the penis is, I guess, got way long an erection that won't go away. I mean, I'm only an amateur penis expert, so I might have the terms wrong, but priapism is from priapus, which is the Greek God of fertility. So like we use fertility for a male medical problem and we use the God of marriage for normal anatomy. That stuff. It's such a reminder that language matters in so many things. And of course, medicine is no, uh, no exception to that. I was also left baffled by terms, textbook terms like women's inferno and, and women's winter. And I was, wow, this is, these got okayed. Yeah, like these were actual terms that people used for menopause in the past. It's, well, it's crazy. In those were 1800s. textbooks, right? I yeah. mean, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean they the death of sex, women's winter. I mean, if the whole worldview of society is that you're you're mm-hmm. already defective and then you become more defective when you go into menopause, then you're you've become basically, you know, you've ascended to a lower class of yeah. citizenry, right? So we have had sort of in the docket a dozen questions for you from listeners who knew you were coming onto the show. You, you, people are so engaged with you just because of the way I think you've always had the blog and you've been engaged with people. And so you really elicited a lot of stuff. So we'll try to get to some of those questions right now. And, and we are not qualified to answer these and we'd be remiss <laughs> not to ask you because we have you here. So uh, somebody, a writer, Martha wrote in, I have a hot flash in the night. And I, you can speak about the term flash and, and, and your mm-hmm. thoughts on that if you like. But she said, I have a hot flash in the night. I wake up so drenched in sweat that water is dripping out of my calves. I don't get the hot part as much as the sweat part. And what actually causes that? Yeah. So hot flashes, which I like the term flesh, uh, which is also the British term as opposed to flash, because it's not instantaneous. Like a flash is, you know, just like that. And a flush mm-hmm. lasts longer. Although I prefer the old term from the 1700s, hot blooms, because that's really mm-hmm. what it feels like. It feels like it's blooming out of your head. Oh, wow. So yeah, people do some people, I mean, just as you know, like neurological phenomenon can be expressed in so many weird different ways. Like it's, and a hot flush is a, a neurological phenomenon. So what happens is, 
thermoregulation, temperature control, and reproduction are intimately linked because during the second half of your cycle, when you're more fertile or the fertile period, your temperature goes up a little bit because that's better for implantation. And so obviously there's all these interconnections. So when your hormone levels change, you expect that maybe there might be some, some temperature dysregulation. And so there's, there's these neurons in the brain. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but I think they're called kindy, K-N-D-Y, and they're part of signaling heat. And so they say hot, 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 but you know, like everything in the body, there's stimulating pathways and there's inhibitory pathways and estrogen's part of the inhibitory pathway that says, nope, we're not so hot. Nope. We're not so hot. Nope. You know, so there's this back and forth. So without estrogen, you have more heat signals and you don't have as much sort of suppression. And it's possible that some of the other hormonal changes in menopause also drive this. So this is just possibly one explanation. And so your body thinks it's hot when it's not. And as we all know, it's in your brain where magic happens. If your brain tells you something's happening, it's happening. And so you become hot, you feel hot. And now what do you do when you're hot? Your brain's hot. It, it, so it's not your core temperature has actually risen. Your brain thinks your core temperature has risen. It feels like your core temperature has risen. So what do you do when your core temperature is rising? You dump heat. And what do you dump heat by? You dilate your blood vessel and send your blood to your head and your arms and your torso to get rid of heat. And so, and then you start to sweat. And since there's a lot of autonomic instability associated with menopause that we don't really quite understand, some people sweat more than others. Some people are hot more than others. It's so fascinating. Some people have all the feeling of heat, but don't get the hot flush. And some people have the hot flush and they don't get the feeling of heat. So, you know, we don't quite understand it all yet. But yeah, I mean, some people have them at night and don't wake up at all. I don't, some, I still have some. And my partner will be like, oh my God, the heat from your body actually woke me up. And I'm like, oh, I slept right through it. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. So this is a related question we have from another listener, Charmaine. She says, what can women do about sleep disturbance during menopause? And I guess they're talking about maybe unrelated to hot flushes. Well, sometimes they are related to hot flushes and you don't know because some people okay. don't have that heat feeling, right? Or they, they sleep through it, but what's happening is they're coming like out of REM and they're having a disturbed sleep. But like any medical problem, you can't just assume it's menopause because that's also happening at a time when you're more likely to develop, you know, for age-related sleep apnea or, you know, other medical conditions. And so if you have a sleep disturbance, you should go in and, and be seen and be screened for depression and be screened for sleep apnea and be screened for all the causes of sleep disturbance. Sometimes it's because there's been a pandemic and you've been on your phone till 11 o'clock at night, right? So you're not getting to sleep. So there could be a lot of reasons and it could be everything or it could be one of them, or it could be a few, right? That's that just as you know, like that's the complicated part of medicine is teasing out how many puzzle pieces are in this puzzle. Is it one piece? Is it 10 pieces? And which are the pieces? So yeah, so you, you know, you do the workup. And if someone's having a lot of hot flushes during the day, well, chances are they're probably having them at night. And so then it may be related to that if you don't find any other causes. But like a lot of things in medicine too, where we don't have tests to tell us, sometimes you have to do a medication trial and see if it makes a difference. Okay. We have a listener named Jen who says that she did a quick search on menopause and in her searches, she found MBF, menopausal belly fat, mentioned enough times that she's thinking it might be a real thing. So her question is, what in God's name is it and how the heck do I avoid it? Well, so I think what they mean by that is 
visceral fat, which is the fat that's around our organs in our midsection. And that fat is inflammatory fat. So that's associated with increased risk of heart disease and diabetes, and even dementia. It's associated with a lot of medical conditions. And before menopause, men are more likely to put on visceral fat. And during the, the menopause transition, that sort of switch happens and women start putting on more visceral fat. And it's a complicated thing, like everything. Part of it's related to the loss of muscle mass during the menopause transition. So if you're losing muscle mass, but you're still taking the same amount of calories, you're not burning off as much. But there's other complicated changes as well. And so women start putting on visceral fat, which is one of the contributors to increasing rate of heart disease, you know, during the menopause transition and afterwards. So they basically catch up to men. And so that's what it is. And sadly, it's sort of a normal part of the aging slash menopause process. It also happens to men as well, but they don't have that sort of big switch you know, from sort of pear shape to kind of apple shape, if you will. And so the best way to prevent it is exercise and a healthy diet and calorie restriction. Those are the, those are the ways they're not sexy. They're not easy. Mm. And I always tell people the healthiest thing they can do pre-menopause, during menopause, any time in their life is exercise. Basically every single medical problem that's associated with menopause is improved by exercise. It even right. reduces your rate of dementia. You bring up men, and that might not have been a good thing. I'm very grateful, of course, because now this, uh, apparently I have uh, an inflamed liver. I have a fatty liver. And rather than blame it on beer and chicken wings, I can say this, it's just menopause, everybody. It's just male menopause. Is that, can I go with that? No. Uh, no. <laughs> no, I'm not a hepatologist. And so I'm certainly not an expert in fatty liver. However, if you listen to the last episode of Body Stuff, I do talk to a hepatologist and we do actually talk a little bit about fatty liver and glucose. So you might find that interesting. So we have one question from Lauren and she's asking, are there nutritional supplements that can help offset perimenopause symptoms, she's thinking like omega-3s. And similarly, what about calcium supplementation and when would you look into that? So I always call, you know, supplements you have to be really careful about because, you know, they're also the number one cause of medication-related liver failure. And most of them aren't tested at all. So I just got an email from some company telling me about their great menopause supplements. And I said, oh, that's really wonderful. Can you send me your clinical trials? And oh, we're a small company. We don't have any clinical trials. Oh, great. Okay. So you have an untested pharmaceutical. Let's be clear about that. So I tell people to divide supplements into things that they are truly supplementing from their diet, meaning what are they missing from their diet that they should be having? So you should be having 1200 milligrams of calcium a day if you're in menopause or close to menopause. So if you're only eating 800 milligrams a day, then you want to supplement with a, an additional 400 or 500, you know, whatever dose that you can get in that's close enough to that, right? But if you're having 1200 milligrams of calcium a day, you do not need a supplement. If you have a clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis, that may be different. So we're talking about people who don't have a diagnosis. Similarly, at the age of 50, or our ability to make vitamin D drops significantly with age, and it's really hard to get from diet. And many of us are wearing sunscreen. And so probably taking a dose of you know, vitamin D, like 800 international units around that dose every day at the age of 50 is probably a good idea as well. Maybe if you live at the equator and you're outside in the sun, where they have nice sun all the time, right? Like if you're in, you know, Winnipeg, you don't get a lot of sun. You know, you go to work in the dark, you come home in the dark, right? Like you're not getting sun exposure. It's just different. 
so vitamin D supplement. There's some data to suggest that people who don't have two servings of fatty fish a week can benefit from taking omega-3s. And obviously, if you're a vegan, you are going to need to look for a vitamin B12 supplement, either nutritional yeast or, you know, whatever, however you want to take it and possibly supplement because, you know, we all know that animal heme is easier to absorb than plant heme. So, you know, you just want to know your numbers. And, but apart from that, there's actually no supplement that's needed. And I think it's really important. Those are making up a shortfall in the diet. They're not a treatment. So it's a different thing. That's like making sure your gas tank is full. That's it. So then there's all supplements that are meant for symptoms and they are largely untested. And the ones that are, are largely ineffective and some are harmful. And so the only two that have been shown to, and there's a whole chapter on this in the book. So I really encourage people who are interested to, to buy it is Equal, which is a phytoestrogen and something called Relizin, which is like a B, I don't know, like a, a bee pollen thing. And so, I mean, not bee pollen, but a pollen thing. And so those have been shown in some low quality, small studies to be helpful. They're probably not harmful. So those are the only two I can recommend. But for example, black cohosh, a popular one that's talked about, has not really ever been shown to be effective, is associated with liver failure. And here's the kicker, 25% of bottles of black cohosh in the United States don't contain any black cohosh at all. Wow. And then so how would tested. you- Right. Yeah. So somebody did wow. a test because they wondered, and this is a really great question. They wondered how come people did well in some of the studies, but did terrible in other of the studies? And is it because maybe some lots didn't have black cohosh or actually had less than they said? And so what they found was 25%. And they also wondered if that might explain some of the liver toxicity, right? Like, was it because of adulteration, which is a common problem in supplements? People don't understand that. If you're buying something for ovary support, it could contain estrogen. It could contain thyroid hormone. There's no regulation to prevent that from happening. So if you're getting a clinical effect, it could be because that supplement has a pharmaceutical in it and you will never know. And then all of a sudden you've got a liver failure and no one knows why. So people need to be so careful about those. Imagine if every time you opened a bottle of milk, there was a 25% chance it was orange. You'd be pretty angry, wouldn't you? <laughs> right? 25%. Like placebo, you know, placebo orange juice. Well, so they wanted to know what the black cohosh was contaminated with because they thought perhaps it's a, it grows only in North America, right? So they thought perhaps maybe people were accidentally picking plants nearby, right? Like that they were, you know, they were picking too much. Well, what the, the, the black cohosh that didn't black cohosh had was plants that weren't native to North America, plants that, you know, from other countries. So purposely adulterated. We only have really time for maybe one more question. I think this is maybe a good one to sort of wrap things up on, which is a question that is, what one health habit can I do now to reduce symptoms of menopause later? Is there an option to go through it all unscathed? So, you know, we only hear the horror stories about menopause, but lots of people don't have any problems. And, you know, for example, 25% of people don't have any hot flushes at all. So I think that's important to remember. You know, we have different tolerance levels too about what symptoms bother us and what don't. And for most people, the menopause transition is the worst phase, kind of like puberty is the worst phase, right? Mm -hmm. And then you get through those rocky years and you're okay. And some people are happy maybe not happy, but they are content to manage that rocky time without medications. 
everybody's different. Everybody views their body differently. But the single, single thing that you could do is exercise besides quitting smoking. If you're a smoker, quit smoking. But if you're not a smoker, it's exercise. That is the single best thing that you can do for your overall health for menopause. It's not going to reverse symptoms like hot flushes or vaginal dryness, but it's going to keep you in the best of health. It's going to help prevent things like osteoporosis and diabetes and heart disease. And those things shorten your lifespan. And also if you're taking, have to take medication for heart disease, you know, you might have side effects from those medications. Like hot flushes can actually be a side effect from some medications. People forget that. So the healthier you keep yourself, the better you're going to sleep, you know, the exercise can help depression. So exercise. Okay. And Dr. Gunter, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And I want to show you something. We had such an influx of emails for questions for you from our listeners. And you know, it made me realize as you were talking, it's because people trust you. They trust you oh. on Twitter. They trust you on social media. And it really means a lot, I think, to not just women, men as well. I mean, I follow you on social media and we really value your opinion because you stand by what you say and it's evidence-based. So people who agree with that, which I think is almost all of our listeners, you need to check out the Menopause Manifesto. I read it. It's great. I have a line of people saying, uh, can I borrow that from you? Can I borrow that from you? I'm like, just buy it. Please just buy it. It's great. Oh, well, thank you. And I'm always like a little nervous explaining neurology to a neurologist. I'm like, ooh, the brain, right? <laughs> Pathways. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. And I'm just yeah, I think people get that I'm curious and I want the answers and I just want people to have the facts because I hate seeing people get scammed. It's just so awful. And you feel so badly for people in the office and you just like think, wow, what if we could have prevented this? You know, people come in with reams of blood tests they didn't need and they spent a thousand dollars or more. And then you know what it's like once someone's, you know what, it's not just in medicine. Once you've spent money on something that's not working out, it's so hard. We're all, we all buy into that sunk cost fallacy and we keep spending more money. And, you know, I just feel really bad for people. And, you know, and also, you know, we in medicine have to do a better job of communicating. So, yeah. But thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Our genuine pleasure. Thank you, Jen. Thank you guys. Take care. Bye. And go Mustangs. Exactly. <laughs> Start with a Western joke, end with a Western joke. Good stuff. Good book ending there, you guys. <laughs> Take care. Take care, Dr. Guy. Bye bye. That was Dr. Jen Gunter, physician, OBGYN, pain medicine specialist, columnist, podcaster. And now the author of the new book, The Menopause Manifesto. We thank her very much for being on the show today. Yeah, she was amazing. We really appreciate her having her on. She's really great. And uh, like we said in the interview, lots of you follow her on Twitter. Definitely recommend picking up her book. And for us, just remember to follow us on social media, Dr. V Comedian. Again, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on LinkedIn, we're on YouTube as well. If you want to listen to our podcast on YouTube, the video is just like a still image that says Dr. Versus Comedian, but you know, some people like listening to it on YouTube. And if you could just do us one favor, you guys have been great with the ratings and reviews. We've loved that. But if you could just, any of you are on Reddit, Reddit podcasts, if you could go to that site and if you write stuff on Reddit a lot or you upvote things there, if you could just mention Dr. Versus Comedian there, it would really help us out. And remember, 
that although I'm a doctor, as is Dr. Gunter, we are not your doctor. So medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. They are not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks everyone for listening. See ya. Thanks. See ya.